Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Critics of Christianity sometimes claim that conversion is nothing more than a psychological experience. Sometimes the charge is, isn't it possible to explain the Christian experience in purely psychological terms? Now, you've probably never heard the objection to Christianity stated quite like that. So let me give you the various forms of it. For example, one form of it that you may even have thought about and perhaps have heard someone challenge you with is this, that Christianity and Christian conversion is nothing more than being preconditioned. The idea is something like this. Muslims are raised by Muslim families. Catholics are raised by Catholic parents. Lutherans grow up in a Lutheran home. So they're just preconditioned as children, and so when they become adults, they automatically follow in the footsteps of their conditioning. That's one form of the objection that Christian conversion is nothing more than a psychological experience. Let me give you a second type of argument that is under this big umbrella. And that is that it is wish fulfillment. And the idea here is that human beings have this need for God. So they created a God to meet that need. We teach that God created us in his image, and the objection is, no, it's the other way around. We created God in our image. So that uh, Christians have been hypnotized. They hypnotize themselves into believing that there is this God that somehow feel, fills this need in their life. But that's another way of saying that Christian conversion is nothing more than a psychological experience. There's one more I'd like to mention. Uh, it's one I've heard, uh, not recently, but I've heard in the past, and it goes like this. Christianity is nothing more than a crutch. You ever had anybody tell you that? Uh, the idea is that there are people who can't face reality or the future without a crutch. They cling to religion. Uh, so the attitude is we're, not, we're sophisticated, we're not superstitious. So we don't believe in those kinds of uh, psychological experiences and we don't need God because we don't need a crutch. Now, in this series of answering all the objections to Christianity, I'd like to address this one. 
I'd like to start by looking at perhaps what is the greatest Christian conversion in all of the history of Christianity. I'm talking about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. I am not suggesting that every conversion is like Paul's conversion. That isn't the case. I am suggesting that the Apostle Paul had a classic conversion that illustrates the answer to some of these objections I just raised. At any rate, look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the gourds. So he, threatening and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, Go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they who led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. All right. That is a dramatic conversion, to say the least. Now, the question is, was he preconditioned to have this kind of experience? Uh, I mean, in very simple terms, why are you a Baptist? Did you grow up in a Baptist home? Just out of curiosity, how, much you grew, how many of you grew up in a Baptist home? How many of you did not grow up in a Baptist home? Wow! There are more here who did not grow up Baptist than there are who grew up Baptist. That's not typical of a Baptist church, by the way. Uh, or put it like this. If you met a Buddhist, you would ask yourself, and if you ask yourself, why is this individual a Buddhist, what would be the first thing that came to your mind? They grew up a Buddhist. They grew up in a Buddhist family, probably even in a Buddhist culture. All right, that's the argument. Then isn't conversion in Christianity just conditioning, like a Muslim, a Buddhist, or a Baptist? They all condition, are conditioned by this, and so when they become adults, that's what they are. Now, I think that may be true of some people. I'm not questioning that. But that's not quite the objection. The objection is not that it happens. It's that that explains all 
conversion. The issue is, the objection is, isn't a psychological experience the explanation for conversion? That the only explanation is some preconditioning. And that's where I say we draw the line. And Paul is an illustration. Just to give you a sample, put your finger in Acts 9. We're going to come back for a minute. But turn to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we have Paul giving his uh, life story, so to speak, of uh, how he grew up. And this is what he says. Philippians chapter 3, look at uh, verse 3. For we are of the circumcision. Now that's just another way of saying I was a Jew. Who worship God in spirit, rejoiced in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now he's going to give his background. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Here is my childhood and my background. As a Jew, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means he spoke the Hebrew language. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You understand what that means? I was so Jewish that when the church came along and they started saying Jesus was the Messiah, I didn't buy it. I persecuted the church. Interesting. Uh, Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning righteousness which is of the law, blameless. Now, that was his conditioning. Now turn to Acts chapter 9. Find out where he is just prior to his conversion. Uh, Philippians 3 is his conditioning as he grew up. Acts 9 is the state he was in just before he was converted. Verse 1, breathing threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters to him to the synagogue of Damascus so that he might find any of the way. And in the book of Acts, that little expression, the way, is a reference to Christianity. Whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, (laughs) what he was doing was persecuting Christians. And when he meets the Lord, the Lord says, you're persecuting me, not just them. So, Paul was not preconditioned to accept Jesus as the Messiah, and he was not of a mind to do it the day he met the Lord. All of his condition was the exact opposite. He was adamant that Jesus was not the Messiah. So he not only was not preconditioned, he was totally against Christianity. And then, of course... He met the Lord. So it seems to me that Paul's conversion illustrates the fact that there was no precondition and that many people like Paul have had a similar experience. It also indicates that uh, conditioning is not the issue. Now let me pursue that just a bit further. We all know people who grew up in a particular home, pick the religion, it doesn't matter, 
And as adults, they followed it, right? You may be in that group. We also know people who grew up in a home that had a particular religious conviction, and when they became adults, they departed from it, right? So conditioning doesn't explain every situation. That's my point. It isn't just a matter of preconditioning. Now, that can be multiplied times millions. Uh, matter of fact, people have become Christians from every conceivable background. Like no other religion, there are people from every culture, every nation on the earth where they have become Christians, even Muslim countries. There are people who have become Christians from every socioeconomic background. There are people who have become Christians out of every economic background and political background. You just can't say that it is preconditioning because so many people that were not conditioned became Christians. Preconditioned simply does not explain the conversion of many, many people. Would you permit me to tell my story? Some of you have heard some of it. I thought about this a lot, and I thought, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. I don't know that I've told this publicly in a long time. I'm going to tell you how I became a Christian. My father was from Greece. He was a Greek Orthodox. He married an American who was not. So I was christened in the Greek Orthodox Church. Now, mother and father were then divorced. I ended up with my mother, and she was not a Greek, but she wanted me to go to the Greek church. I must have been all of seven, maybe eight, and I really, really objected. It was, they spoke in Greek. It was all Greek to me. <laughs> so they sent me to Greek school, and that was worse. I remember very clearly objecting to going to Greek school because I didn't have enough time to play. So my mother said something to my father, and my father apparently said, don't worry about it. And so my first experience with religion was pretty negative. Now, uh, I had a cousin on the Greek side of my family who was converted during World War II on a battleship as a result of reading the New Testament. And he came back to this country, came back home, and ended up joining a Nazarene church, and he became a Nazarene pastor. So when I was somewhere around, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, he would pick me up and take me to that little bitty church. Now, why he never talked to me about the Lord, I don't know, because he was very interested in that. But he didn't, and I felt totally out of place in that place. I remember very vividly feeling uneasy when I went there. I didn't feel like I fit, and I didn't. I remember uh, sitting out back once when they were having some kind of a meeting, just feeling like, get me home. This just doesn't feel right. Then I became a teenager, and I got a driver's license, and I started dating. Now, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, and there's a Baptist church on every corner, and it seems like all the girls I was interested in were Baptists. So I ended up in a Baptist church. Bored 
as I could be. Now, I did what every teenager in that church did. I sat on the back row, and I doodled in the bulletin. And they had this evangelist come, and he started preaching hell, fire, and damnation. And this girlfriend of mine starts crying. She wanted me to go forward. Now, as you men know, there's no power like water power. So I went. I got down front, and they said, are you coming by letter or profession of faith? Profession of faith. What in the world is that? I'd never heard that word in my life. And then they said they wanted a letter. Now that I understood. My mother would write a letter for me. She'd get me out of trouble. I, you know, she spoiled me that way. And, and she always would write a letter to school, so I figured she'd write a letter to, you know, whoever. So I said to the fella, I can get you a letter. So I signed this card, and I became a member of the Baptist church. They baptized me. That means I've been baptized four times. Because Greek Orthodox dip you three times. One for each member of the Trinity. So I've been dipped four times. So I went to Sunday school. It was horrible. It was terrible. All they discussed was football. And at the time, I didn't understand football. wasn't interested in football. I have since become a football fan, as you know. But back then, I didn't understand it, and it just didn't fit. So I don't know what happened to her, but she and I broke up, and I got another girl. And we went to church. Now, I have to, this is part of the story I don't think I've ever told publicly. She was a singer in a rock band. Elvis Presley was the rage at the time. And there was this guy named Eddie Seymour, who was a mimi, uh, a, a, Elvis wannabe, and she sang with him. So that's fine. Well, Eddie had a girlfriend. And Eddie's girlfriend came to me and said, are you aware that your girlfriend is dating my boyfriend? <laughs> and I said, what? Well, we'll fix that next Friday night. I'll take you out. <laughs> that's what I did, and that solved the problem. So the next Sunday, I picked up my girlfriend. Now, she was always late, always late. So she was late, and we had to go a little bit to find the church we were attending. I'm going down Ninth Avenue in Pensacola, Florida, and there is a sign that says Central Baptist Church, three blocks. And I knew that Eddie went to that church. I just won. I got to that sign and impulsively turned and went to the Central Baptist Church just to show Eddie <laughs> I won. What I didn't know is Eddie didn't attend the church. <laughs> Stayed up too late on Saturday night. So I'm stuck at this church. And then they decide to have a guy come, and he was an evangelist. He was going to speak for a week. But he said, after the, after the service every night, I'm going to meet with teenagers, and I'm going to teach a course on love. Now this will date me. Courtship and marriage. We wouldn't use the word courtship today. We'd call it dating. So I went to church to hear what he had to say about love, dating, and marriage. I didn't go to church to find God. It's the furthest thing from my mind. I went to church because of a girl. <laughs> it was on Tuesday night of that week. The pastor met me in the hall and said, Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And I said, well, I got a crack at it. I mean, 
I'm a member of two different churches. That'll help, right? I've been dipped four times. That'll get me in. He was totally unimpressed, sat me down, told me that Jesus, well, first of all, he told me I was a sinner. I, we didn't have to argue about that. I had that down. Got that. And then he said, what you need to know is that Jesus Christ died for your sin, arose from the dead, and that you can have your sins forgiven and be guaranteed of going to heaven if you simply trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I had never heard that in my life. That's the first time in my life I ever heard that Jesus died for my sins and arose from the dead. Now, I'm sure I was sitting in services where they preached it. I was just too busy doodling in the bulletin to hear it. That's the first time I heard it. And I trusted Jesus Christ, period. I believed it. I believed Jesus Christ died for me and arose from the dead, and I trusted him. That was it. I had a very dramatic and, yes, emotional conversion. I walked in the door that night, and my mother took one look at me and said, what happened to you? I had a very, very dramatic conversion. But it wasn't preconditioned. There was nothing in my background that would have preconditioned me to believe that. I always felt uncomfortable in church. I went because of a girl, not God. So you're going to have a hard time convincing me that you have to be preconditioned. I wasn't. I paid no attention to what was preached. I can't tell you a thing that was preached. I felt uncomfortable in church until somebody explained to me that Jesus died for me. And that got my attention. All right. The truth is simply this, and this is the point. Preconditioning simply cannot explain all conversions. That's my point. So this argument doesn't work. That boat won't float. But the real issue is this. Preconditioning does not prove whether or not something is true or false. The real question is, what is the objective reality? That's the issue. Now let me illustrate. When you were young, you were taught that fire is hot, right? So, do you believe fire is hot because your mother told you fire was hot? No, you did not. <laughs> you stuck your hand in a flame somewhere. So as an adult, why do you believe that fire is hot? Because of your preconditioning? No. no. Because of something called reality. Reality is fire is hot. Now, are all the children gone? Any children left in church? Because my next illustration, we can't have any small children. I think they're all gone. You know what I'm going to say next? Do you believe in Santa Claus? When you were a kid, did you believe in Santa Claus? How many of you believed in Santa Claus? Raise your hand. Woo! Look at that. You believe some fat man dropped down a chimney and gave you presents, right? How many of you still believe in Santa Claus? Now some smart Alex is going to raise his hand. <laughs> 
<coughs> Excuse me. Now, the point is preconditioning does not validate or invalidate a position. So the question is, is what you preconditioned with true or false objectively? It has nothing to do with your preconditioning. It has nothing to do with your experience. The issue is, is that really true? Are flames hot yes. and Santa Claus real? All right. That's the first type of objection pertaining to is psychological experience the only explanation for conversion. The second that I mentioned a minute ago is called wish fulfillment. Now this one isn't quite as familiar to us, but this is one of, this is one of the things critics really land on. Uh, as a matter of fact, no less than Sigmund Freud wrote a book called The Future of an Illusion. And in it he said this, religious belief Beliefs are, quote, illusions, fulfillment of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. As we've already known, the terrifying impression of helplessness in childhood arouses the need for protection, for protection through love, which was provided by the Father. Thus, the benevolent rule of divine providence allies, alleviates our fears of the dangers of life, end of quote. Get what he's saying? When we were children, we felt helpless. We felt like we needed protecting. And the one that protected us was our father who loved us. So we invented God as adults because that was this fulfillment of the wish that we had as children that we would be protected. Voltaire, the very famous atheist, said, and I quote, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. End of quote. Same idea. Now, let's talk about that. Is this nothing more than a wish fulfillment? I'm, I wish I had somebody protect me, therefore I invented God. Well, I think uh, Paul's conversion, again, is an illustration. He did not think that uh, he wanted Christianity to be true. He wasn't wishing that Christianity was true. He was wishing that Christianity be destroyed. Back in Roman, uh, Acts chapter 9, he says he went to the priest and got permission to go find them, and that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, that he might destroy them. He wasn't wishing for this to be true. He wasn't wishing uh, any of this. He was wishing the very, very opposite. All right. Fasten your seatbelt. This is going to get interesting. This is a two-edged sword. This wish fulfillment idea, it can cut the other way. I mean by that, this. Uh, somebody has pointed out that some of the most renowned atheists, including Nietzsche, H.G. Wells, and Freud himself, had a terrible relationship with their earthly father. 
So maybe the reason you're an atheist is wish fulfillment. You had a bad experience with your earthly father, so you wished there was no heavenly father. Two-edged sword. This argument works both ways. But again, the issue is desire does not determine truth, validity, or reality. Wish does not determine reality. Let's take a simple illustration. I have a ball, and I throw it up. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to come down. I wish it would come down. So I throw it up. Guess what? It comes down. Is that because I wished it so? Of course not. It comes down because of a reality called gravity. Now, to really illustrate the point, I'm going to throw this ball up and I'm going to wish it did not come down. Is that going to happen? No. The wish does not determine the reality. So just to say, well, you only believe in this because you wished it were so, doesn't make it truth. So to say wish fulfillment explains Christianity is wishful thinking. It does not answer the question of what is reality. Now we get to the third objection that falls under this category, and that is, ah, Christianity is a crutch. The only reason you believe in Christianity is because you are weak and you need a crutch. Again, Sigmund Freud uh, portrayed religion as something for the emotionally weak. That is often portrayed by the media. Christianity is, uh, has a caricature of escaping uh, reality, and it's just for emotionally needy people. They are weak and fearful, and accordingly, they've invented God as an aid or an assistance to help them through life. All right, if you'll permit me one more time to look at Paul's conversion, would you have said he was weak and looking for a crutch? No. I mean, there is nothing in this story that would suggest that he was weak. I mean... Sounded very strong to me. Matter of fact, he sounded a little bullheaded. I mean, he was bent on destroying Christianity. He was a religious zealot in the opposite direction. So he wasn't looking for a crutch. Uh, and nevertheless, he met the Lord and was converted. So Paul's conversion illustrates that conversion is not a crutch that people are looking for. Now let's talk about this one for a second. Uh, the crutch assumes two things. It assumes that you have a problem, and the crutch is the help. But that kind of help leaves something to be desired. So let me explain, and this gets a little trickly. Frankly, we ought to be leaning on the Lord 
you know? So maybe you could think of that as um, a crutch. Uh, uh, but that isn't really the issue. I don't doubt that that happens or that it should happen. I'm just doubting that that's the explanation for everything. Uh, psychologists are saying that human beings are insecure, inferior, inadequate, and that's their problem, and so they need uh, a crutch to lean on. Uh, and I'm suggesting that the Bible teaches that people are weak. But the Bible goes one step further. Weakness isn't their problem. Wickedness is their problem. For example, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Meaning, are we Gentiles better than the Jews? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. For all are turned aside. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that do, does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, the Bible teaches that unaided people do not have the ability to overcome their sin. That doesn't mean that all people sin the same sin or sin to the same extent. It means that we've all got weaknesses that produce sin. There are none righteous, no, not one. But if you think what you need is a crutch to solve that problem, then that's where there is a problem. Because a crutch does not solve the problem. As a matter of fact, the crutch can make you worse. As you know, I had a spinal cord injury and was in a wheelchair for a long time. And I graduated to a walker. And then I graduated to a crutch. And I thought, I don't know, hallelujah. It's not, I was in bed in a wheelchair. I'll gladly accept the crutch. And the physical therapist said, you got to get rid of the crutch. I said, what? I mean, I'm doing fine with it. They said, you got to get rid of it. Why? Because it will make you dependent on it, and you will never get the strength in your legs back if you keep using it, and you will develop false posture. Well, what's the solution? Hard work. Ugh. Now, what I'm saying is that a crutch may have its place, but Christianity is not a crutch. It's a cure. What Christianity does is it changes the person. They still struggle with sin, but now they have the power to overcome it through Jesus Christ. So while some people use Christianity as a crutch, and you should depend on the Lord for everything, it's not just a crutch, it's a cure. It's way beyond just being a crutch. But be all that as it may. Uh, there's another issue. If we were looking for a crutch 
Would you invent the God of the New Testament? No. Somebody has put it like this. If Christians were just looking for a God who would simply function as a crutch to make life easier to bear, why come up with a God who is holy and just, easier to bear? Why come up with a God who is holy and just? I'm sorry, I misread that. A God who finds many of their desires and thoughts to be immoral. Shouldn't that be the last sort of God that we would want to make up if we just wanted a crutch to get through life? Wouldn't we want a God who just nods at all our behavior and desires? Oh, yeah. I mean, if what I was looking for is a crutch, I can think of a whole lot better God than the God of the New Testament. I would want a God who um, pampers me does everything I want when I want, I certainly wouldn't look for the God of the Bible. As a matter of fact, Jesus did not offer a crutch. He offered a cross. He said, take up your cross. Now, I need to make a distinction because uh, the Bible clearly teaches that getting to heaven is a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. Romans 3 says, being justified freely by his grace. So I become a Christian by trusting Jesus who died for me and arose from the dead, and that's a settled, sealed deal. But if you want to be a disciple, a learner, that's what the word disciple means, uh, that's going to cost you. And the price is pretty steep. Except you hate your father and mother. And your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus said. That sound like a crutch to you? No. Much more serious than that. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That's closer to the truth than we're just looking for a crutch. So the real issue then is whether or not Christianity is true. Is it reality? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Is this objective facts or is this self-hypnosis? Have we been tricked into some psychological experience rather than looking at reality? So, what I am suggesting today is simply this. Christianity is not a subjective, psychological experience of preconditioning, wish fulfillment, or auto-hypnosis. It is objective reality. Whether me or you or anybody else ever had the experience, the reality is... God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He died and he arose from the dead. Those are objective, historical facts of reality that have nothing to do with whether anybody is ever converted. And that's the issue. Is this just a psychological experience? Is it just psychological? Or is there reality behind it. 
Christians are not claiming that Christianity is true because of their experience. They are contending Christianity is true and their experience confirms it. And those are two widely different things. Experience can substantiate the validity of Christianity, but the reality exists first and then the experience. The experience does not create the reality. The experience confirms the reality. The flame is hot. I don't believe it. Stick your finger in it. I now believe the flame is hot. I had an experience. Well, dear friend, the flame was hot before you stuck your finger in it. And that is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Suppose that a man woke up every morning before sunset, got dressed, stood in his backyard with a compass in his hand. And according to the compass, the sun arose in the east on the first day he tried it. The next day, lo and behold, that compass said the sun rose in the east. Day after day, week after week, month after month, that compass said the sun rose in the east. The reality is that the sun comes up in the east every morning, whether that fellow was awake or asleep with a compass in his hand or empty-handed. The reality is the sun comes up in the east. The reality is Jesus Christ is the Son of God whether you experience it or not. I heard a conversation once about a college professor who challenged that Christians were using uh, a concept of what a person believes, but it was only true for you. You ever heard this? This is another form of this. Well, that's your truth, and I have my truth. That was his argument. Same thing. Well, he used the illustration of a man being tied to a railroad track in a fraternity hazing. When the train whizzed by on the other track, he did not know that it was not on his track. As far as he was concerned, the train might as well have been on his track. He believed that it was so, and thus for him it became true. I'm not sure I follow all that, but that was his argument. He smugly concluded, what's true for you may not be true for me. A Christian responded by contending that Christianity is different than all other religions because of the fact of the resurrection. That's true, by the way. At first, the professor didn't get it. He didn't get the point of the argument. But the more the Christian pressed it home, the professor began to get it. And suddenly he said, Huh. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? That would make a difference, wouldn't it? Simple story. Profound point. Think about this. If Jesus came out of that tomb, this stuff's true. And if he didn't, even Paul says, we're a bunch of idiots. Right? So this has nothing to do with some psychological experience. 
If Jesus Christ came back from the dead, if that's reality, the experience of Christians is not just a psychological experience. If, on the other hand, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a myth, then the experience of Christians is just psychological. So the issue is not your psychological experience. The issue is, is this objective reality? And I say, it is. Amen? Amen. With that, march into the world and tell people that you've had a psychological experience that you have. I had an emotional reaction to conversion. I had an experience. But that's not the issue. Behind that issue is evidence that this stuff is really true. That is the issue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son and giving us your word and not just giving us a myth, a fantasy, or an emotional experience. Now, Father, equip us so that we can be ready to give a reasonable answer to those that question the hope that is within us. And give us the boldness to tell them that like Paul, we've met your son, and that isn't a myth. That's reality. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.